Hi everyone, welcome to Pod Academy. A lie, said Winston Churchill, can get halfway around the world before truth can get its boots on. Well, if that was the case then, how much more valid is it today? The explosion of social media and its ability to circulate and generate misinformation has completely changed the political landscape and it's led to a whole new branch of journalism, political fact-checking. This interview was first posted on the New Books Network and was conducted in the heat of the 2016 US presidential election campaign. In it, Lucas Graves, assistant professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, talks to James Cates about the emergence of fact-checking as a necessary, if often maligned, attempt to get at this elusive thing called truth. It is no longer the case in 2016 that mainstream journalists working at the biggest broadcasters and the leading newspapers can effectively patrol the borders of political discourse in the way that they once did, right? Journalists no longer act as gatekeepers in the way that that they've been accustomed to acting for something like half a century. And that's a really important shift when you're thinking about the rise of political fact-checking over the last over the last decade. If you ask fact-checkers themselves, they'll say that they're doing what reporters have to do in a world where they no longer act as gatekeepers, right? If you can't choose not to report on Donald Trump's wild claims about, you know, the president's birthplace, if you can't deny a claim like that publicity, uh, because now it's going to get into the discussion no matter what you do, then suddenly your your responsibility shifts and you actually have to analyze these claims and start to tell readers whether or not they're true, right? So you have to tackle these deceptive claims head on because you can no longer keep them out of out of the public debate. And I think, you know, I found myself thinking, you know, you were talking about the, the old ideal of journalistic objectivity, which is you go out with your notebook or your camera, you record what you see and what you hear, you come back to the office, you relay it faithfully and to decide whether it's true or not was not always part of the equation. I think of Joe McCarthy on the tarmac in, in Wheeling, West Virginia, waving around the list of the, the supposed communist uh, infiltrators inside the State Department, and people would simply go back and say, Joe McCarthy says there are communists in the State Department. And the, the way we do that, the responsibility somehow, you're implying, has, has shifted. You actually refer to to, to fact-checking as a reform movement within journalism to adapt to this new sort of, of, of ecosystem we have of ideas. Yeah, I think that's really true, and that was what jumped out at me from the beginning as I started spending time with fact-checkers. When they're talking to each other, uh, both sort of within their organizations and at these different kinds of professional meetings that they, that they now have, you know, fact-checkers first from around the United States, but increasingly from around the world, get together, you know, at different conferences. They sit on panels together. Uh, they have meetings. And I was lucky, luck, I've been lucky, lucky enough to be able to uh, attend a lot of those conferences and to listen to their sort of, you know, private conversations, their kind of internal professional dialogue. Uh, and one refrain that you hear all of the time is that, um, 
the job that they're doing is something that every reporter should be doing, right? Fact-checking shouldn't be limited to a special section of the newspaper or a sidebar that runs next to the, to the main article. You shouldn't have to wait until the next day to discover, uh, you know, which claims at the presidential debate were false and which ones were true. Uh, so there's this really powerful critique of traditional journalism that is kind of built into the, to the mission of the fact-checkers. Uh, they really describe it themselves as a kind of response to what we often call he said, she said reporting, right? And that's something that, you know, is, is that critique has been around for a while in journalism. You can read articles in places like the Columbia Journalism Review or the American Journalism Review or go to, you know, professional forums going back decades where, at least, at least into the 1990s, where, uh, where reporters are saying, he said, she said reporting isn't enough, right? There was a powerful response to, for instance, the failure of journalism to, of American journalism, to report very effectively on climate change during the 1990s because uh, reporters were in the habit of, of giving equal weight to the claims of, of scientists, the overwhelming majority of scientists who said that human-caused climate change was a reality, and that small minority who, who said that it wasn't. Uh, and so I think there's been a real course correction in professional journalism as a whole, and uh, political fact-checking is one expression of that. And maybe you're about to ask about this, but I think that uh, this, is the, this is something we see repeatedly in the history of journalism, right? Going back to episodes like the very embarrassing coverage of McCarthy that made it possible for uh, a demagogue like that to have his claims spread so effectively. Uh, you very often see professional reporters in the United States changing the way they work, redefining objectivity in response to you know less than uh, uh, less than heroic episodes in their own history. You, uh, you write of organizing the, the first international conference of fact-checkers in London in uh, 2014. It must have been a really, I mean, a, a sort of an electric atmosphere there. You get this critical mass together of people who all of a sudden realize that they're doing, well, maybe they already realized it, but it's emphasized to them that they're doing something important and different and something that is really changing the mode of journalism as it's practiced, that... It must have been a, a, a quite a feeling. That's really true. And I should clarify that I didn't organize that conference, but I helped to organize it. I, I gave feedback to, uh, to Bill Adair, the founder of PolitiFact, who was the, the main organizer, um, and helped to kind of design the agenda uh, and see the list of attendees uh, and all of that. And it's really true that that was one of the moments when the fact-checkers that I'd been talking to for, you know, for a number of years by that point, really recognized the influence that they had had, not just in the United States, but around the world. I mean, you had dozens of organizations. You have now scores of organizations around the world that very explicitly credit factcheck.org and PolitiFact and the Washington Post's fact checker for inspiring, you know, their own ventures. And you have now... Uh, you know, you have these dedicated fact-checking outlets 
across Europe, in South America, in Asia. Uh, you have a couple in Africa. So it really is a it really is a global phenomenon. And one of the things that was most interesting was to see the American fact checkers kind of start to take on a different role as the leaders of this global movement, right? And to and to recognize, to think more kind of as organizers, to recognize the influence that they had had, and also to think about how they could support this, you know, this wave of fact checking around the world, how they could help it continue to grow. And, you know, the the third global summit of fact checkers happened in Buenos Aires uh, last spring. And, you know, there's going to be a fourth. I think it's going to be in South Africa next year. And so this remains a very, you know, a very active area uh, uh, around the world. Who are these fact checkers? I mean, a lot of them, you, you say in your book, the majority of them have been journalists by trade for a long time. So obviously they're putting journalistic skills to work. But uh, I would think in a certain sense they have to be very careful, very meticulous. Um, you've, you had mentioned in there the, the, uh, the old tradition of fact-checking at the New Yorker, where they would check every little detail. Back then, of course, they were checking, their, checking up on their own reporters. Now they're checking up on outside sources. But there's, there's a certain kind of person who is good at this, who makes a career of this, being a fact-checker? That's a really interesting question. I mean, one thing to note is that outside of the United States you very often see political activists, political reformers, people who work at NGOs, you know, civil society organizations that are trying to build democratic institutions. They're getting involved in fact-checking. I'm working on a report right now about uh, the fact-checking landscape in Europe, and a majority of the dedicated fact-checking outlets, the kind of permanent fact-checking outlets uh, across Europe, have no have no ties to a traditional news organization. So uh, for a lot of fact checkers, this isn't, you know, uh, strictly a journalistic function, right? It's something that activists and, and institution builders can, can get involved in. In the United States, though, uh, you're absolutely right. This, has, this movement has been led by professional journalists. Uh, some of them... Most of them come out of the world of political reporting. Uh, some have been investigative reporters. Uh, it's interesting to think about the kind of different corners of journalism that fact-checking overlaps with. On the one hand, you know, you're writing fact-checks in a day or maybe two. You know, sometimes a piece will take a week. Uh, uh, so you don't have months to kind of dig into something the way that an investigative reporter might. Uh, but there's still something of the spirit of investigative reporting in the sense that you're going behind political claims and, you know, trying to trying to get at the more substantial truth that might that might lie behind, you know, uh, public statistic or something like that. You it, it, this is this can be a hazardous occupation. You 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 talk about your your uh, your advisor at Columbia, Michael Shudson. I guess sort of our leading, what would you call him, a sociologist of journalism. He studies how journalists work and how their work uh, affects the world. He talks about how journalism does not have those sort of institutional protections uh, of uh, licensing or jargon or legal protection in the way that, say, 
uh, a profession like law or medicine would have. And journalists are essentially, uh, uh, you can call yourself a journalist and you are a journalist, which is not the case with law or medicine. And there's always the question of interpretation. I mean, unless you get, you know, you're, you're talking about an issue of, you know, was Barack Obama born in the United States, which we assume we can prove with a document, and fact-checkers, in fact, did, uh, everything's open to, to interpretation. So there's, it brings uh, fact-checkers open to, you know, shots from the right and the left, uh, I think probably more so from the right, that they are biased or that they are leaning one way or the other or that they tend to see things differently than people might want them to, which is, I think, always a hazard when one makes judgments. That's really true, and this is a kind of reporting that inspires an unusual degree of vitriol from the public. Fact-checkers really come under attack uh, to a far greater degree, I think, than other journalists. And, you know, most journalists are used to getting uh, hate mail now and again, maybe more than ever uh, in the age of the Internet when it's, you know, when it's quite easy for somebody to dash off a note telling a reporter uh, what they didn't like about, about their story. Fact-checkers, you know, weather this every day. Uh, they really, you know, they get, they get hate mail from both the left and the right. They sometimes say that, you know, it's one of the few corners of journalism where in a single day you can alienate both halves of your, of your audience. I think the idea that you brought up of journalism as an uninsulated profession, as Michael Shudson puts it, uh, is a really important one because it helps to explain why journalists traditionally have avoided contradicting the things that the people they report on say, right? It's pre precisely because journalists can't make any privileged claim to the truth. They're not really specialists in a way that lets them wall off their practice from critics uh, and from political attacks or lawsuits, as Gay Tuckman wrote about so, uh, you know, so convincingly in disgusting journalistic objectivity. So they're always vulnerable. And I think that has guided uh, journalistic practice, at least in routine political reporting, where it was seen as, uh, you know, as safer, uh, both sort of epistemologically, but also politically, to simply relay the different claims that politicians were making about, about a particular issue. As soon as a journalist, as soon as a reporter gets into the business of deciding whether a public claim is true or not, then they're really uh, inviting attacks and they're inviting critics to question their authority and to wonder, hey, what gives this you know, reporter the right to decide that the statistic I used or the source that I used isn't valid. And that's something that, that happens every day. And there's a real tension, uh, which is fascinating when you watch, watch fact-checkers work, between, on the one hand, uh, their claim to really be offering a decisive account, right? Many of them use some kind of truth meter that you know, declares... Uh, kind of formally that a claim is, you know, true or false or sometimes half true. So they're really rendering these public verdicts that are meant to be decisive 
But at the same time, they admit freely that uh, people are free to disagree with their rulings and that, you know, facts in politics are not black and white and that people might read their reports and arrive at a different conclusion. So when they're challenged, they often say, well, you don't have to agree with us, but at least we've laid out the relevant evidence here. And, you know, that should be useful, even if you even if you disagree with the, the conclusion that we reached. That's why, you know, interestingly, interestingly, fact checkers often describe this new genre as a kind of explanatory reporting, right, as a cousin of the kind of thing that sites like Vox or like the Upshot at the New York Times are doing. We've seen this tremendous uh, surge in explanatory reporting, especially online over the last decade. Uh, I don't think that term even really existed, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. Um, And fact-checking is actually, you know, one way to make sense of fact-checking is by by placing it in that trend. It's it's one brand of explanatory or analytical reporting. We're talking with Lucas Graves, uh, author of the new book, Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. We're uh, recording here in the first week of October 2016, and I I have to ask the inevitable question, which is, how has the rise of Donald Trump messed with your mind, and I assume it has, in the, this whole equation? I and mean, when you started out, he was a sort of an, an interesting public figure. And now he's the Republican nominee for the presidency. And, uh, you know, there has been talk about fact-checking. He has a, objected to, you know, what he calls fact-checking by debate moderators. Uh and there are, uh, I don't think it's unfair to say, followers of Donald Trump who will uh, pretty much believe him to the end. And so it certainly tells us that the fact-checking is, is, you know, doesn't, doesn't penetrate always so deeply, but also that, you know, that it, it arouses a, a certain innate skepticism at least among certain segments of the public. And I, I wonder what's been your reaction to this. Are you surprised by this whole uh, reaction? Well, I have to say the first way that the rise of Donald Trump, the surprising success of Donald Trump uh, in this presidential election messed with my mind is that it his rise took place, uh, you know, as I was putting the finishing touches on this book. And had I had any idea how long he would last, not only through the Republican primary, uh, but now in the, you know, in the actual presidential race, I would have rewritten various passages in the book and really drawn attention to the sort of extraordinary phenomenon of his, you know, his unusual uh, manner of public address, his extravagant disregard for established facts, which really, uh, you know, which really doesn't even meet the already quite low bar set by uh, conventional politicians in the United States. So, I mean, it really is remarkable. I think it's an episode that underscores both the need for fact-checking and the limits of fact-checking 
and again, you know, had I uh, had I had a you know a sort of crystal ball, I would have uh, you know made the opening anecdote, the first chapter of the book, focus on Donald Trump, because I think it's it's such a useful uh, uh, kind of entry point for for getting into the issues that fact checking raises. Now, one of those issues, and this is something that you know, countless uh, sort of analysts and observers have focused on over over the last few months is whether fact-checking ever makes a difference. Obviously, Trump's candidacy has kind of put a a sharper point on that question. Um, The truth is, and, you know, there are mountains of social science research that that back up this point, uh, the truth is that none of us is the kind of dispassionate analyst of, uh, of you know, evidence that we like to imagine we are when we're making political judgments. Uh, this is something that, you know, that social scientists and psychologists study with controlled experiments these days, but I think it's a point that was made equally well by Walter Lippmann in, in the 1920s, right, who understood very well the uh, limits of, the, the human mind in kind of making sense of a very complicated world uh, and especially of, uh, of being the kind of, you know, informed citizen uh, that, that our democratic uh, model seems to, you know, seems to require. Um, all that said, and we can talk more about this, you know, I think it's inarguable that fact-checking does make a difference and that we're better off in a world where journalists are willing to make the effort to debunk absurd claims and less absurd ones uh, than we are in a world where they, where they aren't willing to do that. Now, we have fact-checking going on. The, the, the phenomenon, in fact, has been around for quite a while with politically-oriented groups on both the right and the left who will see certain biases in media uh, uh, fairness and accuracy in reporting, for example, groups like this. Uh, is this, do you place this in the same category as journalistic fact-checkers? Are they cousins? Are they uh, uh, different manifestations of a sort of a, uh, uh, an ongoing, I guess, battle for the truth? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, when I first decided that I was interested in fact-checking when I first started interviewing these groups, I didn't understand the distinctions that they draw among themselves. So actually the first organization that I, that I spoke to was Media Matters. And uh, when I was trying to, you know, to secure access to do the field work for my dissertation, uh, initially the group that I was most excited about was Media Matters. Now, Media Matters, you know, is a is a kind of political war room dedicated to analyzing conservative media, especially Fox News. Uh, I visited them in, you know, in 2010. They have this really impressive headquarters with a small army of, you know, interns who spend all day and it seemed like all night uh, analyzing, you know, every single thing that's said on Fox News. And then writing blog posts showing, you know, showing why, showing how Fox is lying all the time. Um, 
initially I thought that, you know, all of these fact checkers were basically doing the same kind of work. It turned out that the journalistic fact checkers, uh, you know, the editors at places like PolitiFact and the Washington Post's fact checker and factcheck.org, who came from long careers as professional journalists, wanted nothing to do with the, uh, the fact checkers at outlets like Media Matters or at their conservative counterparts, uh, such as a, a site called Newsbusters. Uh, at one point in, in 2011, I was helping to organize a conference, uh, kind of a, you know, a 50-person day-long conference that would, uh, you know, where, where scholars and practitioners would talk about fact-checking. And we wanted to invite, initially, Media Matters, uh, but it turned out that the, you know, the journalists in the room didn't think they should be invited because they thought that the event would take on a sort of partisan cast so there's a lot of what you know uh, sociologists like to call boundary work that takes place in the fact-checking world uh, as as the professional journalists, as nonpartisan fact-checkers seek constantly to kind of distinguish themselves from these these more partisan outlets. I will say that you know over the years that I've spent studying fact-checkers, uh, I've come to think that those differences really do matter. I mean, in some cases, Media Matters does uh, does really excellent work. You know, I think they in particular uh, uh, often offer these really rigorous, well-researched fact checks of conservative claims that are indistinguishable in terms of the sources they cite from the work that nonpartisan outlets are doing. Uh, but all of it is offered you know, through a kind of ideological lens, and they're, uh, you know, they're never checking claims from, uh, from the left. And, you know, I come to think that that actually matters. I mean, uh, the effort to be objective means in part being willing to investigate claims from across the political spectrum and being willing to, appo- to approach every claim with an open mind, right? Every once in a while, Donald Trump says something that's true. It seems to happen uh, even less often than it does with other politicians, but it does happen. And if you're going to be a good fact checker, you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be ready to, to recognize that and, and to forget who the speaker is when you start to analyze the claim. Now, fact checkers don't do that perfectly, and obviously some political figures like Trump or before him, like, you know, like Michelle Bachman, uh, some political figures manage to, uh, you know, to build up these really atrocious, atrocious records, uh, because they seem to have an unusual disregard for the truth. And fact checkers, uh, you know, are aware of that. And you can see it echoed in their, in their writing sometimes. I mean, they'll, uh, you know, they'll have a little bit of fun with these kind of uh, really serial dissemblers uh, sometimes in their in their articles. But at the same time, I think they make a genuine effort to approach questions with an open mind uh, and to put aside, you know, any any partisan biases. Uh, and I think that makes a difference. Um, a question that always has to be asked, especially now that the, 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 the traditional media business model is under great assault and the, the media landscape is kind of crumbling 
where does the money come from? Who pays these people? Uh, uh, some of them are on the payrolls of established news organizations, uh, private foundations, you mentioned NGOs. Uh, how far can we go in terms of funding before we start, uh, you know, getting the idea that people are supposed to come up with preconceived answers based on where their money comes from? Look, the, the problem that we face in adequately funding fact-checking is the same problem, essentially, that we face in finding the resources to support the daily reporting uh, that, that democratic self-governance requires, the investigative journalism that uh, public accountability requires. So it's essentially the same problem, right, with the breakdown of the traditional advertising model uh, journalists, you know, journalism of many different stripes is finding it uh, is finding it difficult to to uh, secure the kind of funding you need to uh, to make it a you know a sustainable self sustaining enterprise. Fact checkers are actually in a slightly better position, I think, than some of their peers simply because uh, this is one of those cases where, you know, a useful style of journalism also happens to be a popular style of journalism. So at least in comparison with, you know, other articles that really delve into the nitty-gritty of, of public policy, fact-checking manages to draw, uh, you know, a lot of eyeballs, again, relatively speaking. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, people are drawn to conflict. People want to see their uh, beliefs confirmed. Uh, but, you know, fact-checking is a kind of clickbait, at least, again, within the, you know, the universe of, of political reporting. Um, that said, though, it's an expensive kind of journalism. These pieces take a lot of time uh, to research. It can be surprising uh, how complicated even simple questions turn out to be, how many experts you need to talk to to settle a debate about, you know, unemployment or tax rates, how many different points of view there are out there. So sometimes these pieces will take, you know, one reporter a day or two days, sometimes a week to write, uh, and, and, you know, that costs money. So one model that we see is traditional news organizations uh, moving into the fact-checking world. Uh, so PolitiFact is a project, for instance, of the, the you know, what used to be the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, but this is an area where we've seen an unusual amount of foundation support as well. So uh, factcheck.org lives at the University of Pennsylvania Factcheck.org is staffed by professional journalists with, you know, with long careers in journalism, but it lives at this university, and it's funded essentially by the Annenberg Foundation as well as as well as support from other foundations, and uh, and from you know crowdsourcing, crowdfunding campaigns, um, and around the world, you see even more reliance on uh, on support from NGOs and from the kind of global foundations that NGOs rely on to, to do their work. 
as part of drawing an audience, sometimes the the fact checkers have to play, portray things in maybe somewhat starker relief than they might like. I'm, I'm thinking of politic, PolitiFact, which is a, sort of a syndicated service. They license themselves uh, for other organizations to use the format. Uh, here in Wisconsin, for example, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel runs them. And there's a meter, everything from absolutely true to pants on fire, you know, show, the graphic showing a little uh, pair of flaming pants. And uh, I, another one you had mentioned, it use a, a, I love this, uh, a Pinocchio figure with a growing nose. And uh, you know, I can't help but think of, you know, Siskel and Ebert with a thumbs up or thumbs down. And I think, well, sometimes the world is a little more complicated than that. But it does, drop, as you say, help draw eyeballs. That's true. And this is a really significant debate within the fact-checking world. Uh, you know, fact-checkers disagree about whether or not using meters is a good idea. The majority of these organizations around the world uh, do use some kind of truth meter, although there, there are different kinds of truth meters. You know, groups like PolitiFact uh, really use an ordinal scale, right? So they're kind of rating degrees of truth. PolitiFact's scale has six points, uh, you know, six settings, and it, it runs, the truth meter runs from true, as you said, to, to pants on fire. The Washington Post's Pinocchio scale, uh, you can earn anything from one to four Pinocchios. It's not actually a question of Pinocchio's nose growing. They decided to, you know, they just tally up the Pinocchios. There's also a Geppetto checkmark for claims that turn out to be true, although apparently those aren't handed out very often because, uh, as Glenn Kessler, who's the, the reporter at the Post who works on this, told me, he just doesn't have the time to investigate true claims when there's so many uh, false ones out there. So most dedicated fact-checking organizations around the world do use some kind of, some kind of truth meter, but some of them don't. Factcheck.org has, uh, this is the, the first dedicated fact-checking outlet in the United States. They were founded in 2003, and for a long time they took a sort of principled stand against using any sort of truth meter for exactly the reasons that you suggest, right? It obviously is reductive. Uh, it might lead to people thinking that a, a question has been really solidly settled uh, when, you know, when really what's needed is nuance and analysis and explanation. Um, so factcheck.org would publish, you know, the thousand word analysis without reaching any sort of simple black and white verdict. Now, the counter argument that groups like PolitiFact make is that they're doing both things, right? They, they do have the ruling that they reach on, you know, with their truth meter that's eminently quotable and citable, so it helps their work to spread really widely around the web. And I think, honestly, that's the biggest advantage of using a meter and, uh, you know, a pretty legitimate rationale for it, right? You want this work to make a difference. Uh, it's going to spread, you know, your work is going to spread, your rulings are going to spread a lot more widely if they're quoted by mainstream journalists, if they're easy to cite, and reaching a definitive... Uh, ruling with something like, you know, like Pinocchio's or like the Truth Meter, that helps to that helps this work to have a have a bigger impact. So they'll say, on the one hand, they reach that decisive ruling 
But they also, when you click through the article, have the thousand or two thousand words of analysis that factcheck.org has. So it's a difficult question. You know, I understand the argument for attaching these these ratings to uh, to these articles, even though it is invariably reductive. Lucas Graves, I want to thank you very much for taking time to talk with us today. Uh, Professor Graves is the author of Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, published by the Columbia University Press. We started with Winston Churchill. Let's finish with George Orwell, who said, Politicians' words are designed to make lies sound truthful and murder sound respectable.